3: Hey there, Blenders. On this week's show, Bros Box Office Hellraiser hits Hulu and director David Bruckner returns to join the show. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 231 of Real Blend, a podcast that wonders. Kevin, I'm going to ask you this one. If you know Jodie Foster's favorite horror movie, Jodie Foster's favorite horror movie of all time. It's okay, a weird I know her one favorite, for her.
1: I know her favorite metal band is Silence of the Lambs of God. Right, um, yes, that's
3: true. We talked about that. But her
1: favorite horror movie? Okay, hold on. So I'm assuming that the title of a Jodie oh Foster God. movie. <laughs> this is uh, yeah. I, James, honestly, I, we're I'm
0: 30 not, seconds into the show. <laughs> why, why, someone, why, man! Oh, Why did you ask Kevin yeah, yeah. this?
1: <laughs> why did you
3: ask Kevin? Because I, I knew you would give it the proper time.
1: Jake, do you know the, the
3: answer to this question? Stuff.
4: We're forty-five minutes late, boys. Do you know Jake? Do you know this, J- is, Jake, this, is, you know, this J- is Kevin? This is Kevin answering a knock knock joke. Knock knock, and he goes, "Well, hang on." <laughs>
1: <laughs> he goes, "Am I expecting
4: anyone?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, hold on. Jodie
1: Foster's favorite horror movie.
3: The problem is the answer is going to be completely oh, overshadowed. Wait, like, exactly. Is it? Is it. Is it?
1: Drag me to. Drag me to Nell.
3: Dude, you are so close. It's Nell Razor.
1: <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yes.
3: Drag me to Nell's pretty good though, drag right? Yeah. Wasn't good. she? She hasn't seen she that Nail, I honestly right? thought it was gonna be she like, like in...
0: super lame and just be like it's silent cell lamps. She really Nell Razor's pretty good.
1: Yeah. Alright,
3: Drag Me to Nell, I'll take all right, on this week's oh, show. No, uh bros <laughs> box office, unfortunately, uh is gonna get discussed. Hellraiser. Hellraiser hits Hulu this week. Hellraiser. And, uh, Nell Razor and director David Buckner uh, of Hellraiser returns to the show Bruckner, to discuss Bruckner, you
4: forgot, You forgot an R David there.
3: Bruckner. What did I, what did I say?
4: It sounded like you said Buck Buckner, is what I thought you said.
3: Well, he's coming back to the show <laughs> after being on here for the Nighthouse, and he's going to discuss uh, his new Hellraiser film. Um, I'm oh, Sean O'Connell, the managing editor here at Cinema Blend, and I'm joined this week by Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jake. How are you, sir? Hey, buddy. I like your shirt. Thank you. One I don't wear that often. I don't wear red that often. Yeah, the Nationals. Well, there also, you go, Kev. Well, that's the yeah, Senators. That's, yeah, it's an old, old
1: original title. Yeah.
3: Kevin McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington in Washington D.C. Hi, Kev.
1: Well, uh, first of all, thank you for that opening joke. It, like sometimes, huh. like we that used to be such a big part of our show, jokingly, um, yeah. and it got my brain going. So, thank you. <laughs> you Good. needed to You're kick welcome. into the gear a little bit. So, appreciate it.
3: Gabe Kobach uh, and the producer's chair is already moving us forward because we have so much to get to. This week, um, if you're watching us on YouTube and checking out my new uh, newish Washington Senators T-shirt, hello, hit subscribe, turn on your notifications. You'll be alerted every single time a new episode of Real Blend lands on the YouTube channel. Uh, have you signed up for Real Blend Premium? On Premium, which drops on Mondays, uh, we give you a bonus show. This week, we're going to be doing the Oscars in review uh, for mm. 2022. You do not want to miss that. We haven't done nope, one of those in not a long 2022. time. 2022. 2002. 2002
4: there you go i'm, I'm
3: off today we are I'm we are yes. in
4: 2022 yes it's we okay. are we're, too, we're gonna okay. we're gonna
3: litigate what happened already last, last the most recent Oscar. the slap
4: <laughs> was it real or did we imagine it yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> uh so check the descriptions here um for wh- how you can sign up for real blend premium and join us for all the fun of that um I want to plug uh, uh, an A24 movie that is in theaters currently. and might be playing near you guys. It's called God's Creatures. Mm. Uh, Earlier this week on Wednesday, uh, we dropped a bonus episode, which is the directors, the co-directors came on and joined the show. And Kevin and Jake uh, were able to handle that. I just wanted, uh, Jakey, to get uh, real quick. Just let us know uh, how the film is for people who haven't had a chance yet to see it and what they should expect from it.
0: Uh, It is a really tight Tense thriller sounds like the wrong word because of the subject matter. But, man, are you on the edge of your seat while you're watching this? It's a small, um, uh, small community in uh, Ireland. Mm. And, uh, you know, a, a family's son has been off in Australia for seven years. He finally comes back to town. He tries to get integrated back into the community. And uh, uh, yes, who, who's, who's fantastic actor. If you've never seen normal people, you are missing out on something special. Um you know, everyone's kind of suspicious of him having come back except his mother. And all of a sudden the son is accused of sexual assault. Mm. And, uh, it's one of those small communities that unfortunately, uh, does not believe women. And the mother tends to kind of turn a blind eye to the glaring evidence at, uh, what, you know, that is, that is mounted against her son. And, um, from there, it takes a look at these kinds of small communities. Unfortunately, you know, one of the things we talk about in the interview is that even though this story is perfectly molded into this community that is very perfectly realized and unique to this situation, it's a story and uh, and, and a circumstance that unfortunately is probably applicable to just about every uh, community, not just in this country, but around the world. Um, so it's a really specific story. Uh, because of the world in which it, uh, it dives into. But uh, it's, it's also a very universal story that I think a lot of people are talking about right now. Again, thriller was the wrong word, but it's just a very tense, tight film about uh, a, a very timely sort of situation. It's beautifully acted, uh, very, very sharply directed. Um, and I, I really I, it's a very, very strong film. And I was very happy that uh, we had the chance to uh, to speak with the directors. And it's, and yeah, it's and their,
4: their debut as well, which is always cool to get some some people on for their debut.
1: For sure. And I want to mention uh, the conversation is really interesting, too. We get into a lot of technical aspects of filmmaking from the perspective of two artists who worked behind the camera Mm, for a long time. mm. Um, And so, you know, we're talking about people who were have been editing Focus pulling uh, camera operators. Um, There was I mean, this is just me because I'm just a nerd about this stuff. But uh, I think Gabe was listening in. There's some really cool stuff in there about focus pulling and like uh, practical focus pulling like that old school technique and kind of what that was, what that gives you as a storyteller going forward in your career. So if you're interested in all in those technical aspects of movie making, you're interested in filmmaking yourself. um, This is a pretty like grassroots like we're kind of like going back to some old school techniques um, while talking about a modern their new film um, but kind of what got them there too so it's kind of a mm-hmm. cool little film school i would argue in itself and I'm, i grew up watching those 10 minute film schools that robert rodriguez used to put on his dvds um so this <laughs> is kind of reminding me of like just kind of like being able to ask someone directly how'd you do all these little things back then so
3: yeah, they love yeah. those questions. You could tell. Absolutely. That'll get into the process. Uh, so That's called God's Creatures. Uh, that interview, again, is available uh, as a bonus episode that we put up earlier this week. And the movie is in theaters right now. Uh, our main interview this week is with David Bruckner, who is the director of Hellraiser, who, uh, as mentioned, I'm not quite sure what number it was, but he had a movie came out. It came out called The Night House. Uh, I love The Night really, House really so like. much. A lot. Rebecca um, Hall. Yeah, it's on, right? it's on, uh, yeah, it's on HBO Hall. Max. If yeah. you
0: haven't seen it, you're you're missing out.
3: It is really good not to be confused
0: uh, with the lighthouse by the way
3: correct yes that one's about uh lobsters and and
0: and, (laughs) And whether or not someone likes them
3: (laughs) yes it's true uh but david bruckner directed the new hellraiser and there's a new pinhead and there are new people for them to go after and we're going to review that later on in the show but in the meantime uh this is the real blend interview on behalf of the new hellraiser with david bruckner Feels like you have been uh, going around talking about this movie with almost everybody.
5: <laughs> it's been, it's been a, yeah, yeah, it's been a bit of a circus. It's been good though.
3: Well, so I, I'm going to dive right in. I mean, um, yeah, sure. this show is, is, is technical and, and our audience loves hearing about the filmmaking process, but we also take a lot of sort of uh, big picture approaches to it. And so I wanted to, cause I was watching you guys down at Fantastic Fest and, mm-hmm. and showing the movie to them down there. And as part of that, uh, I got to see that moment where you were shown the fangoria cover you know uh yeah, with you guys sure. on it and i i can't imagine how much that means to you but i wanted to get your opinion on um just the difference between uh rolling out a movie that has a legacy you know and, and has a built-in fan base and mm-hmm. how different that is from when you've brought you know an original project to the screen that, how different those experiences might be
5: yeah i mean no it's been it's it's been really wild uh i think as far as the release and how that's different from you know doing our original work i think a big part of it is just that so many different people have a different thing that they value about hellraiser um everybody enjoys it for kind of different reasons and so a lot of those you know are reasons that we love the franchise as well so it's pretty interesting getting um different perspectives on it, what the essence of Hellraiser really is, whether or not we captured it, uh, because there's <laughs> so much to do, you know, with the identity of the picture. Some people, it's, it can be, uh, Hellraiser can be really complex. Um, mm. It can be very surreal. Uh, it can be very graphic at times. It can be very sexy at times. Mm. Um, you know, For some people, the religious iconography really sticks. For others, they like the more cosmic horror approach to it and all, but, you know, we just kind of had to follow our passions uh where the film was concerned so it's it's interesting to to kind of be at the epicenter of some of those conversations and and just take in how much love exists for hellraiser
3: you know and just as, as someone who i'm sure loved uh, fangoria as a kid growing up yeah. like what is it like to see one of your movies on the cover
5: it's pretty it's pretty surreal but I also like I, none of this seems real in that. <laughs> room. You know you kind of want to go back in time and talk to yourself as as a young person and uh uh make sure they understand where some of this is heading but it uh I, I don't know maybe there'll be a moment down the road to take it in a little Were bit.
3: Were you that kind of fan that that snatched up every kind of magazine uh that covered the the uh, industry as much as you could or I was I was really
5: sensitive. I couldn't handle horror films for a long time. I was always a big, always a big monster guy. Like sure. loved, loved effects. I sci-fi was more kind of my gateway in. So uh, I could handle, you know, James Cameron. I could handle an Alien spread. I could handle, uh, uh, you know, big big Terminator fan at the time. But the but the hardcore horror stuff really scared me. And it wasn't until I got into high school that I had a friend who was really, really steeped in the history of horror and was really, really knowledgeable. Uh, Kevin of my best pal in high school. And then okay. he brought me in and, you know, he got me on the evil deads. He got me on the early Romero. Um, and I just one, one at a time, I would just tick off the greats. And, uh, uh, so it's, it started to stick after that.
3: Well, that's hilarious too, because like for so many of us, I think the Hellraiser franchise was, was one of those intros, those gateway drugs that we all probably saw when we were too young, you yeah. know, and didn't even really process fully what we were getting. Do you remember the franchise uh, that really hit you then at that age, and and made you realize, or even at, even at a certain point where you started to appreciate the the filmmaking process that goes into horror, which sometimes the genre gets dismissed from that point of view?
5: Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I think Evil Dead was a real big one for us yeah. because you could track Raimi's progress from the original Evil Dead, you know, to Evil Dead Two, and then Army of Darkness was something that came out when we were in high school, so we were. Uh, or maybe maybe just before, I'm not sure. But so that was something that we could just celebrate with. We were kind of in on the joke at that point. Yeah. Uh, Hellraiser was a tricky one because uh, the first movie that found me was Hellraiser 3. And okay. it was a tough watch in that it was really terrifying to me. The hopelessness of being in that nightclub and not being able to escape and, you know, Pinhead and the other Cenobites being able to dispatch of everyone was really terrifying on an existential level. Right. And I think for a while, just the idea that Hellraiser presented a fate worse than death, which was an eternity of pain and suffering, just just on the kind of surface read of it was a little bit much for me to handle. So it it took a little bit longer for me to to really, really uh, grasp onto Hellraiser. Gotcha.
3: Um, To the end that we were talking about earlier about uh, Legacy, uh, Doug Bradley tweets his praise, you know, uh, of the film and the pinhead design and uh, again to sort of just play into this what does that mean to you
5: oh man it's huge it's huge it's really really big i mean you know we uh over the years uh you know really really studied hellraiser and uh i had a great reverence for it and especially the moments in that first film uh when the centibites emerge and talk to christy in the hospital i mean that's three of the best minutes in horror history as far as i'm concerned right It's cosmic. It's funny. It's surreal. You know, studied every one of those lines a million times over and just seeing what Doug did with the character and then getting to step into the process of making one of these films and realizing how nuanced and challenging and hard it is to, you know, manage any kind of performance that's that far out on a limb, like it's Mm -hmm. it's are unique and interesting and fascinating. And so there's no parallel to what Doug did. So, uh, you know, feeling that he's behind this means a lot to us.
3: David, what's the line between, uh, researching the original too much and, and realizing, okay, I got to step back and make it my own.
5: Yeah. It's something that I think it, it, it's a moving target. Yes. Yeah. The whole thing is making the film over the course of a year and a half. So that's always changing. I think, um, from the beginning, though, uh, I probably had a resistance to doing something that was uh, too direct in how it would emulate what had come before us. First and foremost, just because I just didn't think, I just thought they'd be a losing battle. I didn't think we could reproduce it necessarily. Sure. Um, and when I go back and watch movies from the 80s, this as artifacts of culture, there there is something about the, the charm of the time that I don't think can be replicated. There's something mm. about the modern moment where you step into it and you almost, you need to believe it in in a different kind of way. Mm. Um, and so I, I think from the from the beginning, we just thought, you know, let's make a couple bold moves here. A, mm. we can't reproduce Doug's performance. So right. we're not gonna be able to mimic him in any way. It's gonna be a different casting decision. Um, and, and Hellraiser's always advanced design in a really big way, so like, can we, capture the spirit of the first one, not so much by doing the exact same thing, not creating a music museum piece to that, but um, to do something that just takes a baby step towards the boldness of what that might have been in 87, you know, and, uh, and, and, and then we had a couple good ideas. And then at a certain point you go, I got to follow my passions with this. And, um, you know, and luckily we, you know, Clive, Clive was very supportive of that.
3: Well, I'm glad you brought Clive up because like, then again, the audience is almost twofold, you know, in that I thought your interpretations of Pinhead goes a little bit back more to the source novel, you know, and the, the sexless descriptions of them. And I'm kind of wondering uh, what that freed you up to be able to do, uh, to be able to maybe go back to the, the original text.
5: I mean, yeah, looking at the text, uh, it, it gave us permission to mix things up in, mm-hmm. in different ways. Um, we did take uh, uh, certain cues from the book where design was, was, was concerned, but also, also it was just like our interpretation of Clive's prose and that there's a certain elegance that's present in kind of the poetry of how he writes. And so how do we do that cinematically now? How do we interpret that particular flavor? And so I, we found ourselves focusing um, a bit more on the beautification of the Cenobites, on the elegance of them, on the kind of refined quality of uh, all this, you know, nightmare fuel that goes into creating them. And I maybe struck a different balance where that's concerned. Like in the old movie, he says demons to some angels to others. And, you know, I'm a kid looking at it. I'm going, that's, uh, I'm going to go 95% demon. you, You examine the series longer and you go, oh, I understand the angelic quality for us. We wanted to strike a bit more of a balance on that line.
3: When it comes to the uh, pinhead design, uh, first off, I want to know just how many iterations you went through before you finali- finally came on the one that you enjoyed. And oh, because yeah. it's so iconic, like, uh, are you able to make modifications? What kind of modifications do you feel free to make to it?
5: I, again, moving target. I, I had a, I, I got a shout out to Keith Thompson, who's our concept uh, designer. And uh, I've worked on him with four movies now. And, um, and he's uh, absolutely brilliant. So, we had a big idea about how to do this, where centibytes basically, it was their own skin was leather in a way. Mm. Um, so it's it's wardrobe, but it's all built out of modification. Mm. I'd never seen anything like that before. Right. So uh, it, it, it was a very, very experimental process in the fall of 2020, where we tried a million and one different things. Some of the ideas that we had of how you could render flesh as clothing were, uh, we didn't even know which centibyte they would belong to at times. Right. So, very, very iterative. Pinhead was the hardest because, uh, we didn't know how far to stray necessarily. We thought it would be neat to reference some of the key elements, uh, uh design elements of his costume. Mm. Uh, but then also Keith would go away and come up with just crazy stuff that I'd never seen before. So, um, yeah, I, there's probably, there's probably 40 to 50 versions of the priest.
3: Isn't that great though? Uh, hire really creative people and turn them loose. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah,
5: and and, and it's also and you know, one one of the other things I love about design is that it's it, it's a narrative conversation too because sure. the script. You want to be kind of coy with the audience when it comes to information. You don't to keep that kind of cosmic quality of something like Hellraiser. You don't want to say too much, but when you get into design, you have to be specific. Right, right, right. You can't you can't be vague or abstract. It's it gets really, you do in production design, and suddenly it's like what what are the archways? Are they Catholic? Are they Romanesque? Right, right, right. right. So what's the reference point for Hellraiser? And then you end up creating some kind of construct about how things work that is suggestive only in the imagery. So it's almost like you're writing two scripts simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And sometimes design feeds back into screenwriting and then vice versa.
3: And there's probably that moment too, where you just have to put your foot down and say like, this is the direction we're going, right? Like the conversation has to stop now.
5: Yeah, yeah. And usually it's, I, like, I, I just love to put the work up on the wall. And if you yeah. keep going back to something and it's really complete, you know, that's the best idea as, a, as opposed to getting too iterative and overnoting nuance. Sometimes you can lose the kind of gestalt impact of an image.
3: Yeah. Uh, Jake and I, uh, Jake is one of the other co-hosts on the show who couldn't be with us today. And we were arguing about uh, I did not see Butterball. Is Butterball in the in the movie at all? <laughs>
5: Butterball didn't make it in this Hellraiser. No. Was
3: there a conversation <laughs> to include him at all?
5: Uh, you know what? I'm going to pin this completely on Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski because they are not fans of Butterball. I would okay. have been open to it. He's the only Cenobite that wears sunglasses, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe if we're granted uh, a round two with with, with the series, then uh, right.
3: I'm going to hold you to that. Then um, I want to rave about Odessa, uh, who, yeah. again, if, if we don't invest in her as a character, you know, the, the movie has no chance, essentially. Um, but she brings this uh rawness you know of, of somebody who's dealing with addiction, which is such an important thread line uh through the movie yeah. um Can you talk about finding her, casting her uh what she brought to the part and and specifically maybe some of the ways that she uh even surprised you in the moment you know through different takes?
5: yeah, yeah, so glad you asked uh no, I it, was so good to find her, I think um I always feel that the component of Hellraiser um, that excites me is to to capture the kind of uh, internal family drama of it, yeah. and, like and to play the emotional quality of that up. Like and, and, you know, there can be humor in some of the uh, the more horrific ideas of Hellraiser, but when it comes to the human drama, it's, I just think it needs to have a, a, a sincerity to it and um and we had this uh addiction theme that was related it was an interesting doorway into the pain pleasure interface Mm -hmm. um and we thought was a worthy contribution just thematically to 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 what the series had explored but we really needed someone that could encapsulate that through and through and, and kind of play it from their gut and you would believe it and i always felt like riley would be, in a way, the the Hellraiser, and I say that kind of jokingly because we all knows there is no Hellraiser, like the term refers broadly, but that the spirit of of that title could exist in the protagonist, and that uh, when we found Odessa, I I just, I, I was so excited because here's somebody who is restless, she's committed to being real, she can go from zero to 60 in a split second. Right. And there's a fire to the way she tackles problems, and uh, and a little bit of danger to her as a character. And I just thought, um, how awesome it would be to just set her loose on this. And uh, and she's she takes everything very seriously. She plays it all for real, and um, and walks, I think, what is a um, you know a, a, a really tough line to balance between somebody that you care about but that you're also frustrated with because you want to see them make the right decision. Oh, and for sure. You can see yourself in them in that regard. I know I do.
3: To that end, you're invested in, in her brother's character as well, too, because you understand the plight that he's been going through for years at that point point in struggling with her.
5: Right, right. It's tough love. And it's, you know, to have two characters that care about each other screaming at each other, you know, in the first <laughs> 20 minutes of the movie, Uh, is energy that we wanted in the film, but, uh, but it it can be tricky because if you don't care about them, if you don't believe them, then, then you can't, you can't want them to reach a a better place.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, you went back to the, you're talking about the eighties and, and a certain element of those films that we love so much. And I think so much of it is because it's, it's practical in so many instances, it's practical. And I know that you're someone who strives to do as much stuff as you can, like in camera, but with regards to like the puzzle boxes and even some of the set design, can you talk about what you were able to achieve in camera before you finally had to turn it over to visual effects?
5: Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, it's a real wake up call to how they used to make movies because it's, it's really, really challenging and you don't have time. Gags are unpredictable. You get on set and, and you never know exactly where you're going to land and you got to prep the hell out of them. But um, uh, no, all our Cenobites are practical. All our boxes are practical. You know, We have six iterations of the Lament configuration, all titled differently, but they all transform to some degree or another. And, uh, and they all have moving puzzle pieces that interact. And so all those uh, had to be designed, had to be created. Uh, Martin Emborg was this amazing uh, a, a designer that we found who had created a game uh, called Echo that feels very Hellraiser. And so he really lost his mind on the box iterations. Um, and I should say too, that, you know, they're all real puzzles too, that can, that can be solved. Okay. Um, and you kind of glimpse that throughout the movie, I think for, for a studied audience, they might be able to sort of trace, um, you know, how the puzzles are being solved.
3: No but, kidding. Really?
5: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, uh, but you, you, normally you can only get a few different pieces to move. Um, the puzzle box, of course, is doing impossible things. So you have different iterations of each iteration of the puzzle box. So oftentimes, Odessa's playing with a puzzle box and you know, you'll, the raw footage, you'll hear me scream freeze and then we'll trade out the box that's in her hand. So that you can do the next maneuver. So yeah. uh, uh, those cutbacks are very convenient, you know, so uh, but, uh, but look, there are times we had to revert to a little bit of CGI, um, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer you know, as you said, that that in horror more than any other genre, you, your brain has to believe and sometimes that extra 5% is just about the way light wraps on an object for real, and right. you, you know, and audiences are pretty keen to spot CGI. And I know every time we have to use it, somebody will call it out, you know, frame by frame in the trailer. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hope we we went farther than most. You know, I think um, uh, I think uh, uh, we got a lot of centibytes and they're all really standing there. So.
3: Aren't fans just delightful? (laughs) Aren't they the best?
5: (laughs) I'm one of them. I get it, you know, and you and with this, I'm like, it's you're you know, you're so passionate about what Hellraiser can be because the world is so expansive and the ideas are are so fascinating and introspective and and surreal that um, uh, you you want everything from this, you know, and so did we we share in them.
3: Um, there's an element, too, that I want to bring up and I want to be as vague as possible sort of dance around it because it comes up a little bit later on in the film, which is um, Goran's home, essentially, and the the outer design of it, uh, which as I have OCD uh, to a certain extent. So looking at it was pleasing and disturbing. Uh, so I just wanted to get your inspirations for for putting that together because it feeds into a, a bit of the design of the puzzles, I think.
5: Oh, sure. You you mean the, the, his residence or yes. you, his plight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. His
3: residence, his residence. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, this Hellraiser is a mansion movie. And uh, when I came on board, there was, there was this one percenter called this, this extremely rich, you know, character Roland Voigt. and uh, Ben and Luke had really, really fleshed him out. And I, I just was excited about the idea that this is someone who, should have the means to really pursue both um, you know, the knowledge that goes into something like Lament configuration, but also might know how to use it for his own sort of nefarious designs. And uh I just felt like a character that would feel very appropriate in a Hellraiser movie. And and it gave us a really great palette, like an awesome backdrop for the movie, because you could get this kind of gaudy elegance that's everywhere um and in some ways the 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 the, you know the palace or the mansion uh even its design could be reflective of lament in some way or another he's kind of a fanboy so it sort of makes sense
3: yeah Yeah, it really did feed into that narrative (laughs) um in terms of franchises in general uh some of them you know we put up on a shelf and we're like Those are untouchable. You know, there's no way back into those. You can't do that as someone who is now not necessarily reinvented, but you know, dipped a toe back into a beloved franchise. Do you think that that's accurate? Or do you think that almost anything can be re-accessed?
5: I mean, I'm, 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 I'm someone who thinks it, I don't think it ever tarnishes the original, you know, Um, this is the 11th Hellraiser movie. There will be more, you know, I, I hope there's a TV show. I think, um, uh, it, there's also comic books, you know, uh, additional stories, novels. There's a ton of fan art on the web, like as long as culturally we're inspired by these ideas, the Genesis being, you know, Barker's novella and that first film, um, it will go on to live in one way or another. So I, I'm fully embracing of it. I think that, you know, the eighties, and many have said this, but you know, um, the amazing movie monsters of the 80s are carrying on like Universal Monsters did earlier in the 20th century. And so um, if, if, if there's new ways to experience them, great. I, I'm someone who hopes that there will continue to be reinvention where that's concerned. and sure. Not something that is, uh, you know, too exacting of a reproduction, just because it's, I think it's fun,
3: yeah. It's tough though, you know, because like they brought Elm Street back, You know, and obviously Jackie O'Haley is a terrific actor, but when it wasn't Robert Englund, you know, it just felt wrong. But yet with you guys, you know, you you bring in a new pinhead and it works. So it's like, how do you find that line? It's I do understand how difficult it could be.
5: Yeah. Well, with the iconic characters, especially, you know, I mean, I think they did a wonderful job on Evil Dead 2013 because, uh, you know, they just didn't try to reproduce Ash you know, there's no getting a Hellraiser movie made without Pinhead. So um, uh, I I think we had the benefit of there being a lot of precedent out there for Pinhead as a woman. Mm -hmm. And so it allowed us to do something very, very different and uh, hopefully ask permission from the audience to explore the character in a way that isn't going to emulate what they experienced before. Because so much of, for me, what feels like Hellraiser is is Doug Bradley's booming voice is, is, You know his regality. You know the way, um, the proclamatory nature in which he speaks, and the kind of kind of cosmic knowingness um, that he employs. And uh, and we just thought we're just never gonna we're never gonna hit that exactly. So um, by casting it different, by imagining it differently you know, we're able to make new discoveries. And I think Jamie's priest is, uh, is sultry and sensuous and, um, you know, mysterious in different ways. Uh, mm-hmm. It's scary for different reasons, you know, but um, I, 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 you know, I hope that people can embrace that because for me um, it's, it, it, it's still super fascinating and it just opens new doors and, and it, and it's how, it's how we can have more Hellraiser.
3: You said TV show. Do you think there's something about the material that just lends itself to, to that format?
5: Well, I know they've been developing the one over at HBO. And uh, yeah, I think it's, look, it's a pretty infinite palette. Um, one thing about the Hellraiser movies is it's not a formula construct. It's not, you know, slashers, you're kind of reproducing this anthemic uh, experience over and over and over again in one way or another. And if, if, you know, the savvier filmmakers can get in and really tool with those expectations, but you're still waiting for kills to tick off throughout the movie in some way. Sure um i hellraiser has always been fantasy greeting horror and so the mythology has potentially been very very expansive so you know one of the things that's unique about it's all the hellraiser movies just they have different narrative engine um including ours so uh yeah i think it's actually well tuned for long form um Mm. you know whether that be consecutive films in the future or television you know i just say it because there's you know the hbo show has been in development people wonder which is it going to be and I, i you know Let's, let's do it all.
3: Uh, David, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you, uh, you being here with us. And uh, I just can't wait for people to start seeing this, man. It's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome, man. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Take it easy now. Thanks.
4: This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse.
5: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
3: Thank you so much to David Bruckner for stopping by the show. Hopefully, he becomes a regular guest. And um, I'm really, I I liked the fact that he talked about at length uh, the challenge of bringing a a film in a franchise to theaters you know like the experience he had with Nighthouse that it's an original project he's bringing it around here he has the like we talked about how when he was at um fantastic fest most recently and got a chance to see like his movie on the cover fangoria like what that meant to him kind of thing and just these things that come with being part of a, a major horror franchise uh, i think a lot of people are going to dig parts of hellraiser um when it comes out but we'll Like I said, dive deeper into that film uh, a little bit later in the show. Let's transition into the box office conversation. Um, Some of it good, some of it not so good. Um, And then I have a big question that I really want to bring up to you guys uh, that I think is going to make for an interesting conversation about streaming and stuff going to theaters. Uh, So Bros, Billy Eichner's new comedy, uh, opened to a disappointing number. It opened to 4.8 million uh, domestically. It hasn't opened in international markets yet yet. I think projections probably had it at around nine or 10 million going into the weekend. So yeah. Like uh,
1: high single digits they were saying. Yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, underperformed Um, and, you know, I think we're all disappointed in the fact that the audience didn't come out to find this. Um, We all liked it when we, you know, we, we like it a lot. We reviewed it on last week's show. Uh, it's an extremely funny it. comedy. <laughs> yeah. Really got behind it. And, um, and you could tell that the audience that did go to see it really liked it. It has an a cinema score um, and so I guess, Kev, I'll go to you. You know, do you think that because of the cinema score and the audience response for the people who did go uh, that it could have legs and word of mouth might be strong enough on it that it goes for a week or two?
1: I mean, I hope so. And what, what what's interesting is like you, you, you know, this is a film that when the trailers hit, I was like, oh, that's going to be a big hit. It has that Apatow vibe. It's, it's new, it's fresh, it's fun, but it's also bringing back that romantic comedy. I started getting a little worried when I started watching his Billy on the streets that he was doing the ones in promotion for bros, the one he did with Paul Rudd and, and, uh, and, Jack Black. uh, Jack Black. Jack
3: Black one. Yeah.
1: And he was doing them and he would walk up to someone in the street, multiple people and say, Hey, are you excited to see bros this weekend? And no one seemed to know what he was talking about. And I was but like,
0: he, to be fair, he also walks up to people with Chris Evans who
1: has no, and they have no idea oh, who Chris Evans is. Right. I get that. But the, but the point being is that like, at least the way I was when I watched that, I was like, I was just hoping that people were going to be a little more amped about it. You know what I mean? Sure. Or people knew about it more. Um, and and Jake's not wrong. I mean, there are people like the Paul Rudd will walk up and someone won't even realize they're standing across from Paul Rudd. But at the same time, <laughs> I just I found that like bit. it, it seemed like he like it seemed like people just didn't weren't aware of it. And which is weird because, you know, we all love it. But we all we you know, we also live in a film bubble, right? We live in a world where you know, our film Twitter and the way we view things and movies seem bigger to us than they do to the whole world or the whole country. Um, I wanted this to do well, and I, I do think that it will find an audience on streaming. Um, but there were a lot of people who said at the at the get go on this one, oh, I'll wait. I'll wait for streaming on that. Hmm. And I think that's where we're getting into a place now where people are. That's the decision they're making. They're going, OK, do I go to the theater for this one or do I wait for streaming? Uh, it'll be on you- P- it'll be. Peacock in a, what, a couple of weeks, probably. Right. So think it's maybe yeah.
4: maybe like, um again, post pandemic, meaning post like theaters are open and, and that's no longer restricting them from that sense. During that, the last couple of years, we had a lot of comedies very quickly. we I remember us discussing like comedies very quickly went same with family movies, very quickly went to home video. Staten Island. Yes. And a lot of the conversations we had, a lot of conversations I think we had with filmmakers around that time. Was the idea that comedies are actually much better with a crowd. And so do sure. you think maybe audiences because of that, because of those movies moving so quickly to oh. streaming the last couple of years, maybe need they need like a Top Gun Maverick of a comedy to show them like, oh, I should go to a theater to see that. Like do,
3: well, that, it maybe there's it a couple of yeah, factors be
4: retrained to not just wait for a comedy at home. Well, there's a couple of factors. So Jake and I saw it
1: together with a crowd in Chicago, and it was electric. It was yeah, awesome, saying, and it yeah. was so fun. And like, it was just great to to laugh in a film again. And I saw Seth Rogen tweeted something about like how it felt great for him to be back in a movie, hearing laughter with people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the criticisms that I saw that really I thought was dumb was like, oh, they're they're the, they're not big enough stars, uh, uh, Billy and Luke. And I'm like, but look at the cast of Smile, <laughs> who has really no stars it's kevin bacon's daughter not saying that she's not a star but at the end of the day it's well, not, not a, a household, it's not a well, household yeah. name so billy eichner arguably i mean i guess factually is more famous than she is um so at the end of the day like the argument of star power i i think is completely, well, you know, completely throughout I mean, the I, window in the
0: umbrella of judd apatow related comedies i mean 40 year old virgin steve carell wasn't a star at the time when knockdown right. came out katherine heigl and seth rogan were like Right. People kind of knew him for Grey's Anatomy and that dude from Forty right. Year Old Virgin, but they didn't
1: really know Superbad. Those
3: those guys weren't yeah. famous when they did Superbad. Right. Yeah,
1: I think I think one of the big tests or the big tests that we're going to see coming up is how Ticket to Paradise does. And I, the only reason I bring that up is it's a universal film. It's mm-hmm. also a romantic comedy. The, now I I don't know the rating on it officially. I believe it's PG thirteen. I would assume it is. That's um, gotta but,
3: be PG thirteen.
1: But bros was no. R. So, yeah. I mean, listen, we could sit here and debate all day what happened, why people didn't go. Um, Gabe has a great point about maybe our minds are now trained towards comedy in it streaming. But then what's interesting is I know we're going to get to smile um, because Paramount Pictures has had six of their seven last films open at number one at the box office. And a couple of those were comedies. Lost City was a comedy that did really well. Yeah. Um uh, Sonic, I don't know, obviously not a comedy, but it's still like a family fun yeah, like comedy, adventure. Yeah. But in terms of, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I'm trying to remember. Jackass. You guys, Jackass. Great, great example. That opened very strong. R-rated, but it's Huge also franchise, a franchise. Though. Yeah, Huge it's franchise. a brand. Um, and it had, so, been, it had okay. been
3: gone for a while, too, you know, and it came so, back and people mm. had that sort of nostalgia of like, oh, I, I remember laughing at these movies, you know, years ago, and it didn't really miss a beat, too.
1: What's the last R-rated comedy that actually opened well?
3: God, it's been a while. I can't because, even.
0: Yeah, because Gabe has like original a, R-rated yeah, comedy. Gabe's but you point know, is but interesting. isn't this one of those movies every once in a while, I feel like a movie comes out that everyone in my life tells me that they want to see. Yes, yes. But then no one actually <laughs> gets around to seeing it. Like whenever right. I, I covered the film, whenever we aired our interviews, everyone oh it looks fantastic. Really, really want to see it. And then whenever I was covering the box office this week, the people who told me that in my newsroom, I said, did you go see it? Like, mm-hmm. no, I didn't get around. I really want to. But I didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah. get around. I didn't get around to see. It. it's just one of those movies that like, I, you know, well, it, I don't think it quite crossed that threshold of like it's the event that I've got to get. It, it doesn't quite have the I, I can't wait until it gets to streaming. I've got to watch it immediately, you know, sort of so- thing.
3: Here's the cycle that we went through in our house. I think, that, have I told you guys that we watch 90 Day Fiance all the time? Like that's our- you, you mentioned, mentioned My folks love food. that show. So we're like finishing up a season of it, right? And, and we watch it on Hulu. And how, is Hulu associated with Universal? Because for whatever no, reason- Hulu's
1: but, Disney. But if you're Hulu's watching it on Disney? Hulu, there's well, probably they, they could put ads for bros well, on someone there.
4: Else, Disney owns the majority of Hulu. There is one other network that still has a stake. Oh, I anyway, Hulu. I, can't, I forget who it is, but yes.
3: Anyway- Every ad break in um, the 90 Day Fiance episodes that we've been watching for the past week has been bros. Every ad break starts with bros, right? And so Michelle, who, you know, casually knew of the movie, went from, oh, my God, that looks so funny. We got to see that to, um, you know, 10 episodes later, like Mm. fake laughing at the it looks like they injected steroids into Dumbledore line. Which, again, is funny in the movie, but she just got pummeled with it. And finally, the last thing she said to me was, are you going to get a screener of that? <laughs> <It's like laughs> the first time she saw the commercial, she was like, We're, I want to go see that. That looks really funny. And then she just right. got worn down by it. So, I mean, you can't well, say
0: they, didn't, they They toured Billy Eichner around right. the country on a PA tour. You can't say the Universal did, didn't give it their all to try to make this yeah. movie work. Well, and, and I, ha- I, I saw a few people talk about like the promotion. They promoted the hell out of it. You can't knock the promotion. Uh,
1: the other day, I'm going to move on to Smile real quick, but I was standing next to somebody I was on the air and I was talking about the new Black Panther trailer, the Wakanda Forever trailer, which is great if you haven't seen it um for the audience out there um and i was standing next to this uh this uh anchor who was anchoring our show with us that day a guest anchor and she was like oh that's the movie that's going to get me back to theaters for the first time and i and i i paused for a second because i'm like i was like wow the first thing you said was you haven't seen top gun right no no (laughs) gabe that's that was actually my first response i I I said what you didn't go to top gun um and so i it, it i paused for a second i was like wow So there and I remember when Top Gun hit, there were so many people in my newsroom who came up to me and said, I went to the movies for the first time in two years to see that movie. Um, And so then you start really thinking about people and like that decision process and like bros and it's an R-rated comedy like Michelle, like like she thought it was funny from the trailers. And then, oh, I'll wait for streaming. And like, yeah, I think to Gabe's point, our brains are trained differently. Now, if we know that bros is coming to Peacock in two or three weeks, I, I you know, that's oh. a hard sell to get people out of the house to go see it. I mean, it, it so, is a, it's hard.
3: I want to, before I go to, before we go to smile and I want to, I want to tab smile for, for just a second, because this is the question that I kind of wanted to ask you guys going into this, which is, um, hocus pocus two hit Disney plus number one. And I sincerely Shut believe
0: should have gone to the theaters.
3: If it had gone to the theaters, what could it have done, right? And seventy million dollar opening. No, no, not seventy. But if it did 40, or I think you guys are underestimating 40?
0: how like the the the. Mm. Come on, it's the a, power it, of nostalgia. How often have we been shocked by the power of
1: nostalgia? Right. I know you're, you're not, it's not a wrong. It's a yearly. And,
4: it's an annual. It's an annual viewing for like a lot of families.
1: Yeah, yeah. and you're not wrong. And also, I, I watched it. Um, I know we didn't it review sucked. it last week. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I liked the ending. I, it's definitely not as good as the I first too, one. I too. I also
4: liked
0: when
1: it ended. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I actually didn't think it was as bad as Jake did. I, I kind of liked the. I kind of liked it. But I mean, it's not not the first one. It's no. I mean, they didn't they didn't give Doug Jones anything to do in that one. It was kind of kind of bummed me out. But yeah, I mean, that's a good question about Hocus Pocus. I mean, I don't know, but like, but now Halloween, for example, Universal's pulling a bit where they're going to Peacock and theaters at the same time.
0: Well, they did it right? yeah. last
1: year. Right. But I'm saying, but like, why don't you think bros had that opportunity if Halloween followed that model last year? Mm -hmm. And it's both universal. But what
3: I also want to bring up with the fact that they're not letting something like Hocus Pocus two go to theaters is that it feels like that. um, Mid range, not even mid range, but like non franchise movies, right? Mm -hmm. Non franchise movies don't get the opportunity, it feels, to go to a theater and succeed, meaning that. Kids of a certain generation, and maybe I'm just thinking about like, they're not going to go and find the new Hocus Pocus, right? Like whatever Mm -hmm. Hocus Pocus was, uh, They those things don't go to a theater anymore or or they can find it, but they're going to find it on a streaming service, which no longer gives them the love of going to a movie theater and discovering something. And the social
1: aspect of it, of like going with your friends, getting in the car, talking about it, like getting out of the movie walk. I mean, dude, some of the best memories that I have as a kid were like the excitement of like opening the paper, looking at the times two twenty five twenty five p.m. for face off and then like, Dad, can we go? And then like getting yeah. out and like going to get pizza afterwards. And like it's all of that is such an integral part of it. And it's just it's sad that well, one you know, of most I think-
0: pensive answers I've gotten at a junkie recently loud almost a year ago for Ghostbusters. And who's the, the young actress? Was it Mackenzie? Mackenzie Davis? Davis. Yeah, Mackenzie We were talking Grace, about just the power of nostalgia and, and why this movie was going to mean a lot to people. And she brought up the fact that all the movies that she's grown up on are sequels and reboots yeah. and remakes. And she kind of paused and goes, "My generation has nothing to be nostalgic about." Like what? And, 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 mean, and, and when she was like, "When I'm forty, what are the movies going to
4: be that I look Tenet. back on?" And it's going to be, you know, Dunkirk. Well, that's been that's been Disney's entire. <laughs> <laughs> Model like they they yeah. flourish on nostalgia. That's their whole thing to keep you in, involved through your lifetime, if we're being sure. honest. And they've just taken all the all the things that we're nostalgic about and then made them live action or.
3: All right. So then you know, that leads us into that leads us back into Smile, which is an original horror film, which did do well yeah. at the box office, bringing in twenty two million. As we talked about no a little bit earlier, power. no major stars to lean their hat on a very creative marketing campaign. Oh, uh, my anybody...
1: these games yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for people for people out there who are listening to our show. If you haven't seen this, it's the greatest. I, I think this might be the smartest marketing I've seen in years. Like they, they uh, for people who didn't see this, <laughs> Overshadowed they shadowed Aaron Judge. Oh, it's brilliant! Like so, they basically had people show up to MLB games wearing these like bright green smile shirts, and the person would sit there and, to their credit, hold the smile perfectly for the camera as they somebody had to, was. So
3: they had to have tipped the cameraman off to find because you're not just going to oh, find yeah. someone scanning in the crowd of.
1: Oh, it's a it's it's a, I mean it's a very calculated paid promotion. <laughs> sure, thing. sure, sure. But like, there's this one lady. The way she held it was terrifying and it was yeah. like it, it was honestly it, it it's funny because we all work in this business and I, I could just get up and like you know go buy a ticket to the movie but like again we've been doing this for a long time so our bodies like kind of just worked out like oh we'll see this at a screening we'll do this for a junket my gut was like oh that's that looks cool I want to go see that because of that like that made me like I'm like I'm, like, I'm that person who gets up to like a target and I'm the person buying the things in the aisle as I'm going because I'm, I'm that point of sale guy. They, they can. I'm, I'm I am a lock for that stuff, man. <laughs> we, we call those easy targets. Yeah, now, that's I right, would man.
0: argue that the, the genius of that marketing campaign isn't the creativity behind putting them behind home plate and, and doing that. It's that every news station in the country yep. ran a story about that. Yep, so, what, exactly. so forget however much value they got from whoever was watching Aaron Judge chase 61. That that is what it is. You know, but what the, the amount of free commercials Twitter. they got from I mean, Twitter or just the TV time that they got from because because we because we had when we ran that story, we had to run it as you probably were wondering what those people were doing in the baseball <laughs> game. It's a yeah. promotion for our new horror movie. Cut to trailer clip. And which, you know, the, 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 the smile comes out this Friday. Boom. Right. There, You just got your free. like whoever came up with that, it's like Sony and the Mar- Paramount. Is that no Paramount? Paramount. 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 Yeah. Whoever came Paramount. up with that in the marketing, like give them and give them a race. We're going to find out that
4: it's just it's Ryan Reynolds uh, advertising company. <laughs> it's Maximum Effort. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mint
3: yeah. Mo- for Mint Mobile. Dude,
4: yeah. para- can we just highlight Paramount Pictures for a second? I am yeah, just
1: blown, blown away incredible here blown away by yeah. this year and and they are and i correct me if i'm wrong one of the few studios who didn't go to streaming during the pandemic i believe
3: yep. um them and sony try-
1: right and so you know and i get i get why studios did what they did and i'm not judging them i get people wanted content but at the end okay, of the day but wait, day- hold
3: up yeah but I, let me just throw out real fast it's because they didn't really have a streaming service to go to like they now have paramount plus True. and it's kind of a thing if they, they had could, a streaming service, maybe they would have. Like Warner Brothers had HBO Well, they could have sold they, off movies. They have Yellowstone, yeah. the streaming service. Sure. Didn't, didn't,
1: <laughs> yeah. um wasn't Paramount uh, coming to America too? That was Amazon. No, 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 before Amazon. Oh, then they sold it.
3: It was, it was, yeah, then they sold it to Amazon. Yes.
1: Right. So instead of going to a streaming platform on their own, they sold it, whatever, I think it was a huge, like a hundred million or something. Oh, it was I can't a remember. lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And so they pivoted to that, which that movie probably would have opened... Really well, I would imagine. I would assume, sure. Again, yeah. the, the nostalgia effect. But Paramount, I was reading the stat the other day, six of their last seven. We're talking Lost City, Scream, uh, uh, Jackass, Jackass, Talk ass, Gun. Sonic, Talkgun, um, Smile. And then there's another one I can't remember off the top of my head. Just shout out to them for keeping the theatrical alive. Like they they believed. I mean, Paramount is a classic studio. It's It's classic. And they kept. They're they they kept themselves grounded. I mean, we all like Tom Cruise, for example, how easy would it have been for them to send Top Gun to streaming? It would have been that would have sucked so much. It would have sucked. The point I'm making is they didn't. (laughs) And like they they held on to a movie like Top Gun for two plus years. You know what I mean? And so to me, it's just it's incredible to me that that they that they did that. And it's paying off like the adversity paid off for them and kind of waiting um, and now Top Gun is one of the most successful films of all time. The biggest movie of Tom Cruise's career. It'll probably be the biggest movie of the year. Unless Avatar or Black Panther passes it. Um, but, you know, it's incredible. I'm just really Between happy for them.
3: Top Gun, Maverick and Babylon. They've got a shot at winning Best Picture. They, I mean, they could, they could have a well, tremendous critical and financial year. What? You don't think Top think Gun about, has a chance? Best winning picture? Best
1: Picture? No, no, nominated for sure. Not.
3: No, winning. I'm saying, well, ba- I think Babylon has a chance at winning. Um, right. How, I think Top Gun's going to get a nomination. One hundred percent. Yeah, no, For I think sure. it's going to get a
1: nomination. Yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you use the W word. I'm sorry.
3: I think Babylon has a chance. Honestly, I do. I, I
1: think one of the greatest success stories I've seen this year is Lost City. All right, that is that movie opened what thirty plus million. Um, I, to my knowledge, it was an original film. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sandra, Bull, Sandra Bullock, uh, you know the star, and you know Channing Tatum and, and the Brad Pitt cameo even bullet train just passed a hundred million. That's a Sony mm-hmm. film, but yep. I just, you know, you got to think about that for a second. The lost city is not a film that like, I could see people going, man, I can't wait for that movie, but right. paramount just knew what they were doing with it. They knew how to sell it. They knew when to put it out. And it did that. Think about that. That, why would that movie make $30 million? Like it, like it, it because they're i don't know they're just smart about how they play it and it's really well done because that's not a movie that i thought would have done that well it's a good movie i was just surprised that at that didn't seem like one that would be a crushing at the box it's fine. House, but it did yeah. you know i liked it it was yeah. funny um
3: I, I think people really do like sandra bullock and i don't think she works that much anymore she's one of the few she,
1: stars who still brings in those i dollars. think so. like yeah especially she, you know, for especially
4: comes. for a comedy like that like That's such a Sandra Bullock lane that she also doesn't do as much anymore. I think for a lot of people, that is a nostalgic factor that you're like, oh, I'm going to see Sandra Bullock be super goofy, slapsticky, kind of funny. Sandra Bullock, like that's that's speaking of nostalgia.
0: If they could figure out, I mean, just because it seems like Keanu Reeves is doing it these days,
3: if
4: they could figure out a way to get, if they could get them back
3: for speed three? Oh, my God. It would that That would would make all the monies. That would be incredible. Wouldn't you just
4: call it speedy?
3: You just make the three look like an E. One Man. of the E's would have to be a three. <laughs> oh, speed, 100%. and one Let's of the E's be, is yeah. a three.
4: Well, okay, yeah. What's, what's well, the no, thing no. that couldn't stop? It's set in 2033. An airplane. So both the E's are threes. and it's oh, I like, like it. Uh, it's like a post-apocalyptic speed movie. You know? And then
1: you and you do the Halloween bit where you just you forget two existed. Yes. And you just yeah. jump, you just jump right up to the right No, one. I see
4: I no,
0: I think you have to address two, and then throughout the movie, he like is constantly like, yeah, remember that dude you dated on the
1: cruise no, ship or something like that?
3: I, <laughs> <laughs> Wink right at the camera. <laughs> I
1: honestly well, I like speed, Willem DeFoe's speed two. Speed three is a great Need idea! I'm it's telling a you, great you, If you get those two I back together, I love- <laughs> and also like, I mean, doesn't it you seem know, like
0: every little- five minutes, Keanu Reeves is like I, going back to one I of the roles that he did? I
4: have to play the uh, the self aware character on this show that we make every week. I love that oh, no. we're the the middle of the segment where we're championing this original horror film. Would be great. Well,
1: in our defense,
4: in our defense, the
1: the, the argument here is that nostalgia as oh. well
3: sure it does yeah yes. the, i mean
1: it flows but it is funny, no, just funny. oh yeah. my god right. and then, and then well, we, we now, honestly as, as much as like we
0: were like <laughs> like, like shitting on disney because disney does like who owns the studio behind speed disney. oh it's disney it would uh, be yes, a so disney film speed 3 would be a disney film it was
3: fox yeah. oh you're right it was fox i thought it was, yeah, New it was a fox movie yeah all right Man. uh so if you're looking you for an originality airplane. Turn to the movie theaters this week where you will find Lyle Lyle Crocodile starring uh, Oscar winner Javier Bardem waiting for you. And um, surprise, surprise. None of us saw it. It looks like a good press. family movie, though. It
1: does. Yeah. yeah. Also, I'm, I like okay. Shawn Mendes. Um, I want to just a shout the out to him. The crocodile? Uh, I believe so. And Is I you? haven't seen it, but I um, I just I, I, I like that he's the platform that he has and how famous he is. He talks a lot about mental health. He talks, he just canceled his tour dates because he was dealing with that. Uh, apparently the film plays with that a bit as well in terms of like anxieties and stage fright and things like that. Um, You know, I just, I hope and wish more people would be like that. And I, I respect him for that and I haven't seen it, but I, I, I dig that guy. He's cool.
3: cool. Cool. Um Amsterdam is hitting theaters. Uh We're going to give quick reviews on this one and I'm going to start. I, I will say this. I came out of Amsterdam. It is a star studded affair. Um, The cast like the first hour of the movie. Well, the first hour of the movie is is just an introduction of another famous person, (laughs) like every scene is like, hey, here's another new famous person. Here's another new famous person. Um, And and my text to you guys was was just a simple thumbs down because overall, I, I agree with you guys. I don't think it works but there's enough fascinating stuff happening in it. Like whatever Christian Bale is doing throughout it held my interest. Mm -hmm. Right. I was, I was along with, with him for the ride. It is a, they're marketing it as a, as a mystery story. The mystery is so thin. I couldn't even tell you what it is at this point. Um, but Christian Bale has a ton of screen presence. Margot Robbie has a ton of screen presence. We're going to play Margot Robbie blend a little bit later on. Um, so I, I I'm not going to dismiss the movie entirely. I would never watch it again. Um, I do think it's beautifully shot. It looks fantastic. Um, I wish I didn't. Well, I'm not going to even say that because, um, there was, there's something surprising that happens in this movie, uh, pretty early on <laughs> mm. that I would not have, uh, even known to expect if someone didn't hint at it, uh, beforehand. And so when it happened, I was just like, Oh, that's what it was kind of thing. Mm. um, but it's it's just a weird it's a weird movie. Like, I don't I don't even know who you recommend it to. I don't know how a studio got behind. Like, let's put that together beyond maybe just the amount of star power that's involved.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, Jake and I saw it together.
0: Um, I looked over at Jake. Where have you been, Sean? Because we've been seeing a lot of movies together. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't
3: get to Chicago eh, that often. So <laughs> well,
1: Jake and I saw it together. And I think at least 10 times I looked over at Jake and said, what's going on here? What is happening in this movie? Yeah. And like and because the entire film rests on this mystery that you that it doesn't that, that isn't really that interesting um, yeah. or explained well. Um, Emmanuel Lubezki shot this and like it is beautifully shot. Um, but the reason I said it's star studded cast is to a fault is and I think Jake and I have discussed this before. It's like when Mike Myers shows up in, in Glorious Bastards, um, it pulls me out um, and it's like oh my it's.
3: I actually completely it, forgot that Mike Myers and Michael Shannon were in it until you just mentioned it again. Right, and yet that's a right. whole nother thread to that movie. Cuckoo.
1: Remember Cuckoo? <laughs> the, the, the bird thing? Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, to your point though, it was like, oh, there's Chris Rock, there's Taylor Swift, there's Christian Bale, there's Mike Myers, there's Margot Robbie, there's Zoe Saldana. Michael Shannon. I forgot Zoe Saldana was in it. I mean, there's so yeah. many people and I couldn't, I, Rami Malik, I could
3: not tell you who their characters were. Anya taylor Joy. Yeah, we, I don't, we could spend no. the rest of the show just naming people who are in Amsterdam. Right. And I think
4: <laughs> for I haven't seen this, but I saw the trailer and my roommate had to be happened to be sit, uh, sitting there while we were, I think we were watching like football or something like that. He's not a big they played the trailer a lot during football. He, he's not a big movie nerd, doesn't know a ton. He, we watch some stuff. You know, he knows more than the average person, probably at the same time. They were the trailers running and they just keep introducing person after person at the same time after probably the 12th person. We both just went, <laughs> Jesus. Like, right. like not in like a, oh wow that's awesome right. but we were like yeah. like stop okay like, stop. that's how Please. the movie
1: feels like like yeah, like yeah. and like and it's like it's like the trailer it's a, and it's it's like here's the thing it's like at the end of the day when you're watching a film you're supposed to suspend your disbelief and you're supposed to not really think that like like for example jake and i saw he didn't see it together we saw tara the other day and we're gonna Are get You sure he tennis. didn't see it together <laughs> maybe but we're, we're, uh, we're gonna get to that in a couple weeks but the moment that movie started to the end of the film, I did not see Kate Blanchett on screen. Mm. That was, she was gone, just gone um, in that performance. And again, she's very famous and she's very well-known. And that's not easy to do. Like, like Brad Pitt in Hollywood, when he became Cliff Booth, I saw Cliff Booth. So at the end of the day, like when you have that much star power and you're hitting us that much with that many people at that quick of a rate, there's no time to break through and immerse yourself like oceans 11 think about that for example those are all characters that you buy into because Soderbergh sets it up well it's written well and the mystery's smart and it's well done but the cast is a-lister 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 but so it's an example of how you handle that what do you do with it do you make an interesting story and an interesting character but I agree with you Bale was great but overall I was just so disappointed it just felt like a waste
3: yeah it was um there's a movie yeah. coming to netflix uh that jake, jake managed to catch up with jake you oh jake amsterdam, real fast though, right? i mean
0: I, I don't have to do amsterdam we can keep we can keep going keep you but did oh. you like it did you not oh i did not no I, I didn't like uh, <laughs> amsterdam it's no so we can we can keep it oh moving.
1: no i didn't like it let's go
3: so we'll prep people on uh the luckiest girl alive which stars mila kunis
0: oh we're doing luckiest girl alive oh um, we are look, yes it's it's look this is this is a heavy movie and um It's tough because it really does. It it, it focuses on um, a a woman who Mila Kunis plays. And the reason it's called Luckiest Girl Alive is because she seems to have it all right. She's got the handsome fiance and the cool job and the life in New York. But she's got some secrets that are going to uh, sort of start coming back up in her life. that kind of have the the potential to derail that perfect life of hers. Now, here's the thing. This is where it makes it difficult because the movie touches on multiple not just one multiple uh, very heavy sensitive timely topics um, that uh, some people would argue there should be some sort of a trigger warning for people uh, that might not want to see those things however in a weird way those things are part of the mystery of the movie that is to be unraveled so I don't Mm -hmm. feel like it's my right to necessarily say I mean, that's I mean, in, in a weird way, that's one of the reasons I don't necessarily like the film is that it uses these like very like, like horrible, horrible things almost as plot twists mm. um, it's based on a book, by the way. Yes, well. it's, ba- it's based on a, on a best selling book, apparently a very popular book that people are, uh, are familiar with. Um, I, I was not a huge fan of it. It's difficult to get into why um, without ruining it and ruining the mystery of the film. Um, but it's it. I don't the, the, the very difficult themes that it touches on, I don't think it does so in in, in a in a way that it says anything about them other than using them as a as a plot device to derail this quote unquote perfect life and bring up this idea that not everyone's life is as perfect as you think it is. It's it's this drama, it's a thriller, but the 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 heavier themes uh, in which I'm not saying shouldn't be in film because I think they could be in film if you have something interesting to say about them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think there's anything interesting to say about those things in this film. I know that was a that was a crappy
1: review. No, it wasn't. Actually, that would that that would intrigue me. But also, I think you hit on it perfectly in a sense of like it is a hard movie to watch, um, but it does use very hard thematics to drive a story. And, you know, just just a warning that it is very it's not a pleasant experience. All right,
3: Jake, keep the mic and talk about um, Mr. Harrigan's phone, an adaptation of a Stephen King story.
0: Yeah, uh, I would give this a really solid three and a half out of five. Um, I mm. was a fan of this whenever I read it. It comes from a short story collection uh, called If It Bleeds from 2020. And if you know anything about Stephen King adaptations, you know, some of his short stories have yielded some of the best adaptations of all time. You look at the body was turned into Stand By Me and Shawshank was obviously turned into Shawshank. Look, this is this isn't nearly as it strong was. as I
5: know.
1: <laughs> that, um, is well, actually, a, actually, that, that is always is a
0: Let me rephrase. Yeah. Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption was turned right. into The Shawshank Redemption. When you um, tell people that they're surprised oh yeah people know that they're like that that was a a stephen
1: king short story what Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: this is nowhere near as strong as as those but it is a very strong film that perfectly captures the feeling John Lee Hancock, uh, perfectly captures that's that King vibe. It's not as strong of, of a source material. Therefore it can't be as strong as a film, but the source material is still good, which yields a really good film. It stars Jaden Martell, who obviously was in it's chapter one and two. Um, uh, Donald Sutherland gives a really strong supporting performance and, uh, it's on Netflix. And if you're looking look, it's not quite like boo, jump out, shining, scary King, but very unsettling, <laughs>
4: uh, um, Remember all those uh, times they said boo in The Shining? <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
4: But it's, it's a, it's a, it's Stephen a very King's strong
3: King. Stephen, Stephen King's agent. Which one is this one? Is this a dramatic <laughs> uh, adult one or is this a boo jump out scare? Stephen King actually
1: wrote the Tyler Perry movies, the boo Halloween movies. Those know, are all based really? on Stephen King novels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: But it's a, uh, it's a very strong Stephen King adaptation.
3: All right. And to continue Jake's segment of the show, uh, Jake being the only one of us, surprisingly, uh, who got a chance to see Werewolf by Night, the Disney Plus uh, one hour special that uh, Michael Giacchino is uh, directing. So let us know how Giacchino did, Jake.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I really wish you were you were in on this because I am not particularly familiar with the Marvel character of Werewolf by Night. Um, it's uh, Jack of just Russell. Like
3: a, yeah, it's, it's a, and it's really kind of like a one off, like it's not like it's a recurring character okay. sort of thing. So I think that this fits the model of that because it's really just this one hour standalone special. Yeah. I, I, did, yeah, I I watched the first five minutes of it and I saw that title card that you talked mm-hmm. about which very much set it up like a special yes. television presentation that you would watch on like a Sunday night on ABC. Yeah,
0: kind of I really yeah. liked it. It's, it's 52 minutes. Um, I texted you guys from the opening, you know, it starts the traditional Marvel credits, but then does something very fun with it. And instantly went to did the thing that I'm not going to reveal. I was like, Oh yeah, this is very much my jam. It's very much, uh, Michael Chiquino, who is very strong behind the camera, um, doing a bit of a love letter to the, um, the old, like, you know, 30s and 40s universal monster movies, which I I, I love very much. Um, I, I It's a very simple story. It revolves around a uh, group of monster hunters who are, are all uh, there. There's like a leader of them. The leader has died. And so the position of the leader is up for grabs. And they're all being let out into kind of this maze to hunt the new monster. And whoever kills the new monster gets to be the leader.
3: Oh, that's cool. It's
0: um, it's it's uh, it's very fun. the The only sort of like knock to it, because I love so much how much it is a love letter to the old monster movies, and there is a werewolf angle to it. Um, without, which I don't want to ruin, and the werewolf is done practically, which is just oh, yes. Oh my god, like it's the transformation is great, and the the makeup is great. There Beautiful. is. Uh, a, a pretty large plot line that involves another monster and apparently is a, a pretty famous I don't want to say who it is but apparently it's oh, another know, famous know, yeah. monster from Marvel know you yep. um, and that monster is CGI okay I, I get it I get why it has to be just by and by nature of what they need this monster to do and what the monster looks like I get that it has to be CGI but the but because I was so into yeah. this like 30s practical like The moment that big CGI monster showed up, part of my Mm. heart sank a little bit because I just went Mm. like, oh, you don't belong here. You don't belong in that. You know, again, I get it. I'm not stupid. I understand how that has to work. But like there's just something about like there's even like cigarette burns in the top left hand corner. Like Mm. that's how far they went to like make it look like that. And then when you've got this.
3: There's no reason you can't do that creature that you're talking about in. I wish they advice. had. I, I
0: wish that there, there is one shot that made me question whether or not yeah. they did. But a majority of it is 100 percent definitely CGI. Sure. So that would be my one. I very much really dug this. It's very much my. Gen- Look, it's, it's only it's 52 minutes. It can. It, there's only going to be so much story, too. It's a pretty con- contained story. Um, yeah. But I super dug it. I think the thing that kept me from crossing that threshold into like, holy crap, I love this is that big CGI monster in the middle right. of what was supposed to be an old 1930s kind of short film.
4: One question. Yeah. Uh, when we come back around to add She-Hulk to the tier list for Marvel, should we add this? Do you think it's I, worth it? I, I think All so. Right. I mean, it's Marvel. I mean, we'll just, I mean
0: because, especially because they did consider, I read, throwing in a Blade cameo, Ooh. which means it's
1: somewhere it's in, in within the, the MCU. So, I have a question. So obviously a shameless plug real fast because we had Michael Giacchino on our show uh, last year. What was Mm -hmm. it for? What did we
4: have it last year? It was for everything years ago. I don't
1: know. I don't remember. Yeah, He was great, but he was was great great. on our show. It's a really cool interview. We dive into his entire career from Lost to Star Trek to everything. Um, I have a question because he scored his own movie. Yes. Um, How was the music? Oh, well, the
0: music, again, like so much of the movie, is very much a... um, uh like a love letter to kind of like that the the monster movie like the universal monster thing it's fantastic but i gotta i mean i gotta give props to his direction there are some shots in there where i went like damn Jakino, like
3: all right look well, at he's you. been he's been spying on some of the best yeah, yeah the zoe years. white
1: shot it um yeah. who also uh who is the dp for like handmaid's tale i was just looking at that um okay. it, i want to see this really bad it's yeah. great yeah, yeah, yeah I can I can watch it soon yeah, yeah. 52 minutes
2: yeah.
3: All right. uh, And coming to Hulu, this is our our big review for the week. This is the the Hellraiser reboot. And I'm going to go for a little bit, but then I'm going to again sort of kick. I feel like I haven't had
0: a chance to speak much.
3: Who is our. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Get some water and uh, rest those vocal cords. Um, Hellraiser is not one of those franchises that has connected well with me. And so take my review with a grain of salt. You know, um, I I didn't. Watch that franchise a ton um I definitely watched the first one wait when I was way too young um which led to a that was my sort of junket angle going into it was when the people caught up with the original and 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 were exposed to it and everything about like even I was intrigued of course by the visual image of pinhead but then mm-hmm. if you watch the original hellraiser it's all about like you know uh your sexual desires and and uh, the things that you like this new one has a, a really strong through line with drug addiction and it, it it goes to some really heavy places by design by the by the by the um the, the idea of the puzzle boxes and um and pinhead as a as a creature himself or herself now in the case of the new one uh the thing that bothered me about this one is that i thought that the first hour or so was really intriguing because i really liked um the the main girl uh and i'm blanking on her name right now but she was really compelling she was she's dealing with um an addiction and she has a a, a really contentious relationship with her older brother and that kind of forces her into the situation where she's involved in a theft that it, you know is going to put the puzzle boxes uh, into play for her and her and her um friend is so it from Jamie that point Clayton? on
1: Jamie Clayton No Jamie, no, Jamie Clayton is pinhead. pinhead. Oh okay.
3: Um the main girl Odessa uh, Asian who gives a tremendous performance uh to kick off the the movie and she's essentially the beating heart uh that drives the narrative forward. Um by the by the halfway point of the movie uh and, and towards the end and and maybe Jake will elaborate on this. I thought that all of the interesting elements that the movie had set up it sort of discards and becomes this very formulaic beat-by-beat uh, beat horror film, um, which which didn't have any of the things that were special uh, to the Hellraiser franchise. Um, and I just ended up being largely disappointed by it because I thought for the back half of it, it was kind of going through the motions. Um, and some of this may just be, I don't have this affinity for the Hellraiser franchise. Uh, Jake, I don't know what your uh, relationship with the Hellraiser franchise is, if you're a big fan of those movies or rewatch them often, but I mean... First off, what do you think of the franchise and how did you think this one fit into it?
0: Um, I, I really liked the first film growing up, but like you, wasn't didn't have the affinity for all of the sequels beyond that, as opposed to something like, um, you know, the, the Nightmare franchise or, or the Friday the 13th franchise, where I could pretty much tell you, OK, this is what number four is about. This is what number three is about. Well, I the really couldn't went off a cliff. Didn't you, they, well, like, not just that. And, and then went straight to the video store as opposed okay. to at least the Friday the 13th and the, and the Halloweens and the, but also you have to keep in mind. Um, so Hellraiser was based on a book by Clive Barker called the Hellbound heart. And then yeah. he turned it into the book or I'm sorry, turned it into the movie when he made that movie in the late eighties, it was meant to be kind of the antithesis of what the movies were at that time. It was meant to be the opposite of a Friday the 13th and a Nightmare on Elm Street and a Halloween. It was never supposed to be a group of pretty people getting picked off one by one, which is like you said, exactly what this movie turns into. And I think that's my biggest problem is that like the back half of the movie basically kind of, kind of turns into a little bit of a a, a 13 ghosts, a little bit of, of just, you know, watching all these really good looking actors just die one by one, which to me goes against the very core of what, Hellraiser was supposed to be there. There are some very are some hints in the first half of like, okay, we're moving in the
3: right direction. Yeah. Um, Didn't you think that, didn't you think that they were going to start to explore some really interesting topics?
0: Yeah. Because I mean the, the, you know, the, the Cenobites uh, are, are are just a very small, well, not a small part, but they're 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 kind of a uh, just a a, a a piece of the of the puzzle that makes up the whole Hellraiser idea. You know, there's a whole thing with the dude like sleeping with his brother's wife, and it gets it gets very complicated. But like, what it, what it isn't is what this movie is. Yeah. Um, I, I was very disappointed by it, I, and also one of the biggest things I kept telling you guys about is that like the the original Hellraiser, particularly the Cenobites, were so like dirty and grimy and squishy and just the the makeup in this one it looks it looked too i know that's such a weird <laughs> adjective but the, the makeup in this one it just looked too good it yeah, looked I mean, like like something i well, had makeup is shot digitally design, that's why grimy. Grimy. Well, but also you could just uh, just tell like the um It it looked like something out of one of the Silent Hill films or maybe one of the Resident Evil sequels. Like it just they just looked like very made up movie monsters. Um, And it just it just kind of it just kind of reminded me of like, oh, yeah, this is these are these are actors in makeup.
3: Um, I will say Jamie, Jamie
0: Clayton, as hell, as Pinhead, um, I thought was
3: very strong. I did, too. Yeah, I liked her as Pinhead. I do want to because you didn't get to listen to the interview. I did ask Bruckner about Butterball. Um, oh, and he oh, said, oh, what did he say? He, he said that there were a lot of people on his creative team that pushed for Butterball, but he made sure that he did not show up in this. Oh, so he, why? So he's not there. Maybe like to the, hold him the for turkey? another one. He's not.
4: I I think he did a, I think he did say he's hoping that if they get to make more that butterball will show up yeah I, I think so he basically that just that said like I, it didn't fit it didn't fit I, the creative I, of this one
1: I, it was, it
0: was it's, it's probably a weird thing in, in the text group out of context um because I was very bummed I didn't get, that we didn't get to uh, participate in the interview uh, just because of scheduling issues we've talked a lot about our schedules lately but when Sean was asking for question ideas I think I just sent like butterball, butterball. question mark exclamation mark <laughs> which <laughs> like if you don't know what have, so the, all the soundbites Um, And Hellraiser, a lot of them have like different nicknames and stuff, Um, but there are a lot of them from the original that are at least reimagined um, in in this new one, particularly like the the woman who has like her throat ripped open and all that sort of stuff. and Obviously, Pinhead. Um, But there's one in uh, the original who's like kind of looks like his head looks like a thumb, like he's just kind of a little bit chunky, you know, and so his nickname has always been Butterball And, (laughs) uh, and he is he is mysteriously absent From uh, from the new one and uh, and I was bummed because I I love
3: Butterball. Hopefully he will return.
1: Sean, I know we got to move on, but should we just at least shout out that Mike Flanagan's new show drops on Netflix this week called uh, the Midnight the Midnight Club? Has anyone seen it? No, we haven't seen anyone
4: seen it yet, right? Yeah, but it's October
1: seventh. So if you're obviously they're
4: dropping it in full, right? They're going to do the full.
1: I don't know if it's full, but I just know I know. I mean, I'm assuming it's Netflix, but um, if you're a Flanagan fan, like we all are, um, obviously check out our interviews, but his just a shout out to that. Um, And yeah,
3: tweeted something recently where he said that he really wants to do a werewolf story and he's trying really hard. He's been trying for years to like crack, crack the 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 best original sort of werewolf story. And Mm. I mean, obviously we will follow wherever Mike Flanagan decides that he wants to go. But yeah, I love that idea. photo he
1: posted with Del Toro the other day. That was so that was awesome. Great. It was just yeah. like him he's being such a fan.
3: fan. Yeah, yeah, he's such a fan. I love that about him. All right. This yeah. week's blend game uh, is celebrating the uh, the talent of Margot Robbie. And Kev, we'll start with you. You've been you've been quiet for a little while. What's your pick for? I, I, I'm i pretty sure I know what it is, but what's your pick for Margot Robbie? blend?
1: It's interesting because, I mean, obviously I have to go Hollywood, but the, the in terms of my reasoning, you know. One thing I loved about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it reimagined Sharon Tate in this beautiful light of like mm-hmm. maybe like uh, and, and and obviously the, the tragic aspect of what happened in her life. Um, that is a, a part of the story that is connected to her always. And then when you watch the movie to get that, uh, you know, that changed. Right. And then just to see her kind of going around and just being an awesome person to people and then going to the bookstore, picking up that hitchhiker, walking to the movies, going into her own movie, watching her film. Um, it just gave me like a, a sense of like, you know, of happiness that, you know, I would hope that Sharon Tate lived that mm-hmm. life, you know, I, and, and I, and I, I, I want to believe that she did. Um, and I think one of the things I loved about once upon a time in Hollywood, was, you know, in terms of doing that, you know it's it's one of those things where you know what we all know what happened to Sharon Tate in real life and to sit there and watch her in this movie in this like her character's so positive and so awesome and just so energetic and I love the way she listens to music and dances and she, it, it, it was that she just lived life in the, the best way possible. It seemed in the film, the way Margot plays her um, and, you know, it's Tarantino. So, you you know, we're dealing with, you know, a fictionalized account of, of the events. Um, but, you know, I just kind of like living in that dreamland and that last shot uh, when we pull out from the house and Rick goes into um, into the gates. And I just love hearing her voice come over that that speaker and kind of like have him come inside. It was just, I don't know. I just, I, I, I wanted that to be reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. I think that Margot, you know, she's a very famous actor who also is, you know, so talented in terms of like having us forget that she's Margot Robbie. I really felt like I was watching Sharon Tate. Yeah. Um. And I just want to believe it's almost like, um. you know, obviously we we've seen Tarantino play with, history with bastards and things like that but there's something beautiful about being in a cinematic narrative structure and being immersed in a world because the beauty of movies really comes down to this sense of when you're watching it you believe what you're watching like i was just i was just watching the color of uh, money the other day with uh, paul newman and tom cruise after i watched the hustler and i'm sitting there watching it and tom cruise and paul newman two of the most famous people of all time
3: of all and i'm sitting
1: Right. And Paul Newman's obviously no longer with us and I'm watching this and I'm like, hey, I'm so thankful that this exists, that I can like be immersed in this world and like exist with Newman's character of Eddie and kind of like um, it will always be there. It's timeless. Um, And I'm not saying Color Money is a true story, but it's more of just like. I don't know, there's something about a narrative storytelling idea where you can take a real person, give her a different outcome in life. And that's what I want to choose to, to remain, remain in my heart. Does that make, you know, does that make sense? Like it's, you know, her, her death is so awful and so tragic in real life that I was thankful that Tarantino gave it, gave, it it, it gave me such a beautiful look into the possibility of what this person was. It's interesting you're spinning it
3: that way because I think a lot of people would complain, you know, that he's rewriting history and 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 maybe but not. I'm not taking it for
1: fact though you know it, it's for sure, but when you watch it, like the point I think the point of movies, at least in my opinion, and I've been watching a lot of older films, is you get to be taken to a time and place that you weren't at mm-hmm. um and I'm not saying you know i, I want to clear I'm not saying that like Tarantino's vision of what happened to Sharon Tate is fact obviously it's not, but at the same time, I want to believe that that was her heart that that mm-hmm. was the person she was, that that was. Um, she brought her to life in a way like her watching herself on screen mm-hmm. and just the, 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 the beautiful reaction and the excitement she had to herself. Um, I just loved the way Margot interpreted it. And gotcha. I don't know, I never met Sharon Tate. So obviously I don't know who she was outside of the movies, but to me, I just loved what he did with that. And I love what she did with that. And I thought it was wonderful.
3: Jake, I was going to assume that you picked Hollywood too. No, but, oh, okay. Then where'd you go? What'd you pick? I went with Suicide Squad. Do you want me to explain why? Please. I'll, go. Well, she, I'll go. She is good yeah. in that. I went with Suicide Squad. Um, For this reason, I'm going with the performance and not the movie because I know that the movie uh, has yeah. a ton of issues and well, it's not Again, really...
4: Performance is the game. Performance is the game.
3: Yeah, yeah and it's not David Ayer's cut of it, but and, uh, but I think we also now take for granted how perfect she is as Harley. Mm-hmm. She's perfect as Harley Um, to the point where she has performed three very different versions of Harley. Yeah. Why air and not guns? Because it's the first one. And I think Mm. that she, um, you know, she stepped into that role and just owned it. Right. And the other versions that she's playing, she's been able to spin variations, Mm. but it's always been riveted in the central one, which she, which she created uh, for David Ayers movie. And I'm pretty sure that if air put that cut together, you'd see an even better version of her take on Harley. But it was like, legitimately, you pick the character off the page and and threw her out there. And I think, again, we kind of take for granted how much work Margot had to put into that role to make it be as perfect as it is. Um, Harley, I think, is a character who could come off as really annoying um, unless she's played the right way. And in a, you know, in a movie that's dominated by. Uh, the fascination of Jared Leto's Joker, Will Smith being a uh, d- dead shot and in a, being an enormous, um, movie star at that point, uh, just the other superhero effects that are going on around it, a big CGI heavy movie, That she's the lead, like she's the star. She walks away with the suicide squad and es- essentially becomes the thing that carries DC for a couple of years, you know, like we're going to put her in birds of prey. She's going to carry James Gunn's movie. Um, And she could continue to keep doing Margo uh, uh, Harley movies and stories for years if she wanted to. And I think people would keep turning out and figuring out different ways to interpret interpret that character. That doesn't mean I'm not fascinated to see legitimately what Lady Gaga does with Harley Quinn in uh, Todd Phillips Joker sequel. Like the rumor is that that movie is going to be a musical because the whole thing is seen through Harley's eyes. And that she envisions everything as a musical, which could be brilliant. <laughs> uh, you know, I do want to see that. But yeah. um, I, you know, again, it, we kind of just assume that, like, oh yeah, Margot Robbie, she did an amazing job as Harley. But I'm blown away by the amount of work that she put into realizing that vision. It's one of those characters that has become an overnight like she's just part of the pop culture now. At this point, we don't see that I don't think that often with new characters that get introduced. You know, even something as famous as like the different people who have played Batman over the years, um, you show Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn to just about anybody, and whether they know the comics or whether they know the franchises, they they probably know that that's Harley Quinn, and that's Mm. that's significant for her to have a a bombshell appearance like that. No pun, no pun intended, in case (laughs) Jake picked bombshell, so. So, Jake, you went with Wolf of Wall Street thing. I did go Wolf of Wall Street. Ah, one of us. I
0: went Wolf of Wall Street because that is an unbelievably electric performance. But there are so many other sources of electricity in that movie, whether it be DiCaprio's performance, Jonah Hill's performance or just uh, Scorsese's direction that a lesser actress. And that role could have gotten swallowed up or forgotten or Mm. overshadowed. And keep in mind, like none of us really knew who Margot Robbie was when that movie came out. So the fact that like walking out of that movie, we were talking about her just as much as we were talking about DiCaprio's performance, which is arguably one of, if not his best, that we were talking about Jonah Hill's performance. I mean, like she was up there. Like, I mean, we all walked out of that movie going, who the hell was that? Like she kept up with the best people in Hollywood at the top of their games at the beginning of her career. Um, I I think that is an incredible performance in a weird way, similar to how you describe her as Harley Quinn. And that like, that could have been a character or a performance that maybe was kind of annoying, Mm -hmm. but wasn't in the way that we, she played her like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, yeah, like a little bit superficial and a little, but like also at the end of the day, like still just wanted a husband who maybe didn't cheat on her and do drugs all the time. You know. like at the end of the day, there was a a moral center to her and there was, there were layers to her. I just really thought that it's it's, to this day. I I think it's just an absolutely brilliant performance. Um, And the fact that she's able to go toe to toe with uh, Scorsese and DiCaprio on their best day. I mean, I mean, how Mm -hmm.
1: do you, how do you argue with that? Also to Jake's point, that performance, when that movie ended and, we all said, "Who's more? Who was that?" And, and and then I heard her speak, and I heard her yeah. Australian accent. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. then yeah. you the the New York accent that she does in that film is so incredible. Mm. Um, that it was it. I, I that and then the time when I walked in and met Daniel Kaluuya after seeing Get Out, and then I heard mm. his real accent. Those were the two most jarring like changes like
3: that west london you you sound like that wow (laughs) how did you pretty great
0: i just i just had that experience with mia goth for um when i interviewed her for pearl didn't realize that like how kind of accent uh, does she have british
1: does she really yeah no kidding i never know i didn't know that either and like pretty cool yeah and that was that was like when you when you heard margot speak for the first time in real life after watching wolf it was like it was shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. all
3: right, audience picks. So uh Zoab Ali went with uh Michael Kamen's Carrie and many others said Itania, which is one that I actually thought oh, about. I, I would I would argue uh, Itania
0: is probably her best.
3: Probably. Yeah, I think so. Mm. She really loses herself in that performance. Uh Ariel Pace, Zach, Abdulbaki uh went with Birds of Prey. Abby said Bombshell. Zen Jake, which is apparently uh the the peaceful version uh, of our of our co-host Says film is focus, but performance is Harley Quinn, Uh, and Jose Munoz went with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So focus is a good choice.
0: We have to mention PJ Burns' pick.
3: Yes. Okay. So (laughs) PJ Byrne is a terrific character actor. uh, Cheating. And cheating. Yes. Apparently is in Babylon, and would like to uh, point out that he thinks Margot. Knocks it out of the park and crushes <laughs> it. And I don't doubt it. I mean, based on the trailer that we saw and the footage that has been shown of da- uh, Damien Chazelle's new film, uh, which comes out in December, Margot looks like she's doing something uh, incredible. She is also, PJ's a great actor also actor in Wolf trailer. of Wall Street. Yeah, he's yeah, in, he's Wolf, in Wolf, of Wolf of Wall Street. Street. He's crazy. He, said,
0: he, said she, he,
3: he said that he
0: was in three
1: movies with her. I know it's Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street, um, Babylon. Babylon. What else
3: is he, he in with her? Was he
1: in. Was he, in um, he played Tarzan, didn't he?
3: there you go well done yeah no, yeah yeah Thank that's you. right he beat out
1: Alexander Skarsgård for that role I yes, forgot about did. that yeah, he, yeah, play, yeah, he yes. played one
3: of Alex's abs <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. one, just one of them
3: <laughs> all right next week's uh, blend game is gonna be a little bit complicated so I'll throw it to Gabe to clarify what we're gonna try to do
4: hi Gabe uh, next week we're playing hashtag Halloween sequel blend mm. um, and it's Halloween not the holiday or the season but the franchise um, next week the Halloween franchise is supposedly gonna end for, you know, probably a couple of years. Um, what? With Halloween ends. So we thought this was a good time to go back and talk about our favorite um, Halloween movies in the franchise. However, you know, we don't, there aren't too many objective truths when it comes to film criticism or film opinions. But Jaws, Halloween, and Jurassic Park being the best versions of their franchise are fact, and you can't really argue that. So instead of us just talking about the original Halloween, um, you have to pick your favorite of all of the sequels. Any of the sequels, any
3: if of the you, If
0: any of you guys pick three, I'm gonna kill you.
3: Can the answer be none of them? Because I'm not no, quite sure pick... any of them are good. Yeah, I guess
4: <laughs> no. There's oh, you're crazy. They're all fun. They're all fun in their own way. All fun in their mm, own way. Right, anyway, if anybody
1: well, listening is looking for another option to watch, um, I want to mention Fall, uh, that just hit like on demand and iTunes, and okay. it's awesome. Uh, if you're looking sure for something watch to watch,
4: that. I'm not so sure next that I can... week. Hashtag Halloween, Halloween sequel blend is the uh, hashtag you'll
3: use to write it. Halloween sequel blend. Uh, let's ask Jamie Lee Curtis what her favorite sequel is in the franchise. Do you think she'll have an answer? Very possible. Stay tuned. Maybe we'll get a chance to to reveal her pick. The way that we had famous PJ Burns pick in the real blend. See celebrities play the game now. That's what I love about this. Who, who uh, was it? Who uh, was it? Jessica Chastain that like shared. She did share Chastain? the game we did when she was like, time. "Oh, this is fun." And that blew up. Yes. Yeah. We should get her on the show at some point. Yeah. Uh our next premium Cheers episode, we're going out. to record after this and is going to drop on Monday. It is uh once again Oscars in Review 20 2002, not 2022 Uh again, check the description below for all the information on how you can sign up to receive Rebel and Premium. In the meantime, follow us on social media as you guys do each and every week. Uh at Jakes Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV at Sean underscore O'Connell at Gabe Kovach. And the show is at real blend. We'll uh, be back next week with a full episode and plenty of really cool, fun stuff for you guys to enjoy until then hockey pads. What's so special about hero bread, soft, fluffy and delicious breads,
0: buns and tortillas. These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now
2: at hero.co.